0: Hey, have you got bare walls at home or in your office? Do you want to surround yourself with the majesty and inspiration of our mountains? I'm talking truly incredible photography of western North Carolina landscapes. RedRockPhotoNC.com. Stay tuned for details.
1: It's the Pete Calliner Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Calliner is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time.
0: Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate it. Today is Tuesday, August 4th, 2020. The show is made possible by fantastic people like uh, Brian, Gene, and Ben, Daryl, and EZ, and Ed, Cheryl, Curtis, Les, Brian, Terrence, and Brent. I appreciate uh, all of the support. Couldn't do it without you. Um, so hurricane-related uh, topic to start off the show today. Why are we building in flood-prone areas still? And really more importantly, why is government taxpayers, why are taxpayers bailing out these decisions? Right? I got questions. We're going to get some answers, I hope. Um, now, if you are building and uh, you need to decorate all of them walls, then I have got the person for you. Stacy Redman, uh, Red Rock Photography NC.com. Or... <clears throat> now, if you are building and you need to decorate all of the walls, Red Photo That's where you need to go. Red Rock Photography, Stacy Redman. He's from Western North Carolina. He's been shooting landscapes for two decades. And he got into this line of work because he had a you know regular job. And then he was like, you know what? Life is really short. I don't get to see my kid. And uh, I don't want to you know go to the grave regretting that I didn't spend enough time with my family or that I didn't chase my dream. And so he just did it. And he's been doing it for uh, about two decades now. His work is brilliant. It is striking. It is easily affordable for any space. Go to redrockphotonc.com and see all of the Blue Ridge Mountains uh, in their stunning beauty. Uh, RedRockPhotoNC.com. Use the promo code PETE for 20% off. That's RedRockPhotoNC.com. R.J. Lehman is a resident senior fellow at the R Street Institute and the director of finance, insurance, and trade policy, where he oversees the Institute's research into effective and efficient regulations of financial services and the benefits of the international rules-based trading system. You can read his work at rstreet.org. And he lives in Florida with his wife, three cats, and a dog named, I thought this was a misprint, Murray Rothbark. Uh, was that is that uh well first off welcome and uh secondly is it was that your name or uh did your wife take convincing (laughs) for that name
1: (laughs) so uh thank you uh thanks for having me yes it's uh murray rothbard was an economist a libertarian economist um and that's who he's named after uh so that's uh and it was my idea. Uh, she she asks for the pets, and I get to name them.
0: That's oh, the way that's the deal. That it works. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, whenever there's a storm uh, that is either bearing down or has just ripped through North Carolina, uh, I always like to talk about insurance. Right? It's just it's <laughs> one of those topics that. Well, one of the questions yep. though that always actually comes up in the wake of devastating hurricanes or here in the mountains actually we'll get uh some pretty big floods uh which i never thought of before i moved to western north carolina that flooding was such a big problem um but uh the question always comes up why should we be rebuilding in the floodplains right so i'll just ask you that question why does this occur and should it be occurring Uh,
1: it probably should not be it is inevitable that uh you will always have some floods. We know floods going back to the Bible, right? So people live near water, uh, and so flood is a is the kind of risk that we've always had to deal with. Um, but there are limits to what is uh, sensible. Uh, In terms of building and we have uh, through through public policy encouraged people to live in flood prone areas, Uh, for instance, through the National Flood Insurance Program, uh, which uh, many people may not know, your standard homeowners insurance policy almost always does not cover floods. Um, the, the insurance industry for many years wanted nothing to do with floods. That's changing a little bit in the last few years. There, there has been more private options available. But uh, since you couldn't get flood insurance from a private insurance company, back in the 60s, we created the National Flood Insurance Program. And it was a good idea at the time because before we had the National Flood Insurance Program, the, the thing that would happen is you'd have a big flood, a river flood, Uh, Or, you know, a major hurricane and there would be storm surge and the federal government would just write big checks to to bail everybody out. So the idea was let's uh, let's encourage communities to start building to better flood standards uh, and that and in exchange for them making those commitments. We would give them access to this program that would allow people to pre-fund the, their disasters. Uh, it was a good idea. The problem was um, the, the rates that were charged were across way too low, and uh, that encouraged people to move uh, to flood-prone areas because they weren't bearing the risk the taxpayers were. Um, so I live in Florida. Florida is a state at the beginning of World War II was the smallest state in the South, Uh, And it is now the third largest state in the country. Uh, And a big part of that was made possible uh, by the National Flood Insurance Program. Um, So it's a a program that's always been deeply in debt uh, over the last 15 years. Uh, It's borrowed something like $40 billion from the taxpayers. There's no way it will ever pay off any of that um, because it, on a regular basis, uh, collects less than it pays out um and we have not really had the the political will to do anything about that to uh to discourage development in flood prone areas even as you know climate change and and rising sea levels make it inevitable that there are some areas that will be wiped off the map um and eventually we're going to have to move people um and and getting to a place where we can as a as a political community as a country Come to, uh, to accept that reality is, is very difficult.
0: R.J. Lehman is a resident senior fellow at the R Street Institute. Now, if your website is being flooded with all sorts of traffic in these COVID times and you don't know how to manage it all, uh, then call my friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design. Great design can solve a lot of your site's problems. He does professional services, corporate, small business, and entrepreneurs. Schaefer Smith can help you all. He's a, he does graphics, photos. He can manage your online stores, search engine optimization, website maintenance. And security. He even does logos. Uh, he did mine. Go to shafersmith.com and get the most out of your website. That's shafersmith.com. So it doesn't sound like the National Flood Insurance Program is actually an insurance program at all. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's. Yeah, I mean, if you're pre funding and you're not covering <laughs> what you're yeah. supposed to pay out, that's not insurance, right?
1: Yeah, so over, over the way insurers generally work is uh, they buy their own insurance. It's called reinsurance. Mm-hmm. So if there's a big catastrophe, you know, like a hurricane, uh, where the the insurance companies do pay for, you know, wind damage and trees falling, and in many cases businesses are are put out of business for a long time. They have to pay business interruption claims. Uh, when those big disasters happen, the way an insurance company handles it is it buys its own reinsurance. It, um, and that that covers them so that they aren't just completely wiped out in a really bad year. Um, in this case, the reinsurer of the National Flood Insurance Program is the taxpayers. It's the Treasury. So they they just borrow that money uh, into the future. I mean, and there's. As a structure, that that's it's not that that's a terrible way of doing things. It's just you have to look at the unintended consequences and what what are you what is going to happen when you subsidize risk taking. And this is this is a problem we've had with all sorts of government insurance programs. The crop insurance program works the same way, where uh, you know farmers increasingly they convert uh, sod and uh, wetlands. To agricultural usage and those that, that's low quality land um, that as long as the government's going to uh, pick up the tab in a bad year it's worth it to them but it wouldn't be in, if we had a, uh, a pure market way of doing things
0: so what you mentioned earlier that the insurance industry hasn't really ever had an interest mm-hmm. in flood insurance why is that yeah. is that strictly because of this program or was there other or were there other reasons
1: it's complicated history, but basically insurance used to be much more local than it is now. Um, a lot of insurance companies would only uh, only do business, say, in one county. Um, and if you're, unlike a, a fire, which, you know, they can spread from home to home, and certainly wildfires do, but uh, in an urban environment, a fire would generally take, affect one property or maybe a couple of properties on one block. Uh, a flood affects all the properties at once. Um, And that meant it was really difficult uh, to be able to stay in business if all of your policies have claims at the same time. Um, There wasn't uh, the evolved global reinsurance market that we have now, and there wasn't good – we didn't have computer modeling on the the way – the ways that we knew about floods is, is basically a, a very limited historical record. Um, and it's complicated risk that changes all the time. Um, you, the way even the flood insurance program, their maps that they use are badly out of date because every time you put down new uh, impermeable surfaces, roads and sidewalk, that is area that used to drain water into the ground and that water still needs to go somewhere
0: right uh, now it just changes, moves it yeah
1: it just changes the flood the water's going to go somewhere and you have to you have to uh, uh model for where that's going to be they've gotten much better uh and and the modeling of flood is something that you know at this point private companies they do write floods in other countries uh and it's really just in the united states um that it, it has not it has always been a government program um there's in some states there there's been a movement in florida in particular uh towards more private options in north carolina it is a north carolina's regular property insurance market is a little bit wonky um the (laughs) the companies are not really allowed to compete yeah um yeah and so that is it's historically been a little bit behind the curve on some of this stuff but i know that the uh uh, the the rate bureau in North Carolina has actually filed a product to begin offering private flood, um, and hopefully we'll get to the point where it is something that's just in a standard homeowner's insurance policy. Because it's not great for consumers either to not know whether or not they have coverage. You know, you shouldn't have to. Flood is the most notable, but earth there's a lot of major risks like earthquake and uh, um, sinkholes. That are not included in the standard homeowners insurance policy. We really want to get to a point where you just buy one policy that covers everything, so that it's not left to the consumer to to, to have to check constantly. It's not the typical person is going to assume a major, it's something that's going to destroy your home is going to be included. Right. Um, yeah, re- we really need to move in that direction. Yeah, if
0: the Earth uh, opens up and just swallows your yeah. house, you would think <laughs> <laughs> that that might be covered by your homeowner's insurance, but it is right. not. Flood is not, as you mentioned. Uh, there's also, yeah. as I understand it, right, there is no such thing as uh, as hurricane insurance per se. You're basically having to go out and buy all of the sort of policies. Based on all of the different catastrophes that could affect your house like the structure itself, but not like the the event catastrophe itself,
1: right yeah or you'll have a deductible uh, that's common. Um, so if you, you you'll be covered for for the wind damage that a hurricane would do, but uh, maybe not the flood if, if there's water that gets into your house, um, that gets complicated. And in, in many cases, you'll have a, a deductible so that that's higher than other events. If there's a hurricane, uh, more of it is going to be something that you have to pay out of pocket.
0: So after a disaster, a lot of times homeowners can get assistance to rebuild. But mm-hmm. as I understand it, getting assistance to relocate is like yeah. next to impossible. I saw there was uh, some research by the Natural Resources Defense Council, they found that for every $100 that FEMA has spent to rebuild homes uh, over the last 20 years, it's allocated like $1.70 to move people out and buy their property. So there's just no real effort to buy the properties and turn them into like essentially like parks or greenways or something. So if they flood... There's no there's no damage incurred, and then there's no bailout. Basically, um, and, and so why is that the case? Why is there no? Why is there not a uh, sort of more? I guess more of an even split for relocation and rebuilding.
1: We have been moving towards rebuilding, but it's it's politically contentious. I mean, towards sorry relocating. Yeah. Um, it is it, when you have a local community, um, they're going to need to cooperate with. Uh, with relocations because it's not relocating one property at a time is not necessarily cost-effective what you really want is a whole neighborhood that floods all the time you would like to buy out all of those properties and then you no longer have to provide garbage service or electricity or water hookups um, to that entire neighborhood then then there's a cost savings to the community but once that community is gone the local taxing authority whether it's a city or a county no longer has a tax base <laughs> mm-hmm. you can't tax empty land um, and so local officials are not always super cooperative
0: <laughs> with, well with and, plans yeah. to, and, to
1: and if take you have properties off the tax rolls
0: yeah right and usually properties that are pretty valuable if they're waterfront I would imagine
1: yeah often I mean it's it's a mix there are you have your you have your beach homes you also have communities, uh, that are disadvantaged, that are in flood-prone areas. And, and the classic example is the Lower Ninth Ward of Louisiana, uh, of New Orleans, um, yeah. where it, it, it can go at, at either end of the extreme. Beach houses are, are a different thing than places that just aren't served well um, and and people who get marginalized uh, and often don't get the dollars to invest in in better levees and in better, you know, uh, control structures, better sewage systems. Um, that that sort of thing is also a problem.
0: Well, yeah, and it, this was made uh, very clear. Uh, two major storms in North Carolina, uh, probably over the last mm-hmm. 20 years now, the, the first one mm-hmm. that I recall was Floyd uh, that yeah. came in and flooded the entire eastern half of the state. And uh, I mean the rivers just got so swollen that places you wouldn't even think about flooding had flooded. And then it happened yeah. again recently. And um it, it it's not so yes, it's not just the, the oceanfront property that everybody kind of thinks of. I mean you're talking mm-hmm. you know, hundred miles inland gets gets flooded mm-hmm. as well. Um and so this is part of the problem, I guess, with this um with the the flood insurance program is that a lot of the stuff that they're dealing with, I mean, yes, you have your once-in-a-lifetime flood, your 500-year flood or whatever, but a lot of this stuff keeps Mm -hmm. happening, right? So at some point, shouldn't we just cut off the spigot and say, okay, you know, we rebuilt once and now you got wiped out again, maybe twice, but after that, Mm -hmm. no more?
1: I agree completely. I can tell you, even before we do that, the first thing I would do is stop extending coverage to new construction in areas that you already know are flood prone. And there are places where you look at the maps, um, and where places will be facing not one in a hundred year floods or even one in 10 year floods, but annual floods. There are places on the East coast and on the Gulf coast, and even in California, which doesn't get hurricanes. Um, where we are building more quickly more units in places that are going to have annual floods by the end of this century than outside of those places, uh, which makes no sense at all. So, like, let's, as as the, the doctor's credo goes, first do no harm. Right? like, yeah. As a first step, stop building new, new construction in those areas, uh, which you can control through zoning, and you can also control through get rid of the subsidies. You know, don't provide don't provide federal subsidies to roads in those areas. Don't provide federal subsidies to flood insurance. Uh, just pull it all back because we know that we're going to have to relocate
0: those places anyway. What about building standards though? I know a lot of buildings that are going up uh, down along the coast Mm -hmm. uh, in North Carolina and South Carolina, even, you know, they're built Mm -hmm. higher up, right? They've got cinder block foundations now. So there's no, there's no habitable space on the ground floor. It's all just a parking pad basically. Uh, So like you can do some things, right? Can we not mitigate some of this stuff with building code? It,
1: it depends property by property. Absolutely, mitigation is important, and we can do a lot more uh, rather than spending so much on cleaning up disasters afterwards. We can do a lot more on investing in mitigation so that the, the damage doesn't happen in the first place. Raising properties is, is great where that's an option. In some places, though, the, if the land is gone, <laughs> you're not going to want to live on an island, right? Like yeah. In the middle your home can't be an island unto itself in the middle of the water you need a road uh, and you need so those are some of the things we need to be thinking about is in the short term sure you can look you can look at raising your property and then when the storm surge comes through uh you know you'll you'll survive but uh with the longer term and the longer term may be fifty years it's which is you know not that much longer than a than a mortgage usually lasts um in in 50 years there may not be land here uh and if that's the case then maybe that's not where we cite new properties
0: mm-hmm. um and finally uh the response to this is going to be obviously impacted by covid because everything is impacted by covid yeah and um and so fema is uh as i understand it getting ready to roll out some plans that it hasn't used in a while so the first question i got to ask are these the FEMA camps that I've heard so much about? No, I'm kidding. But what is the what are the uh, what are what are the, what's FEMA looking to do now in response?
1: In some places where there are where there's hotel capacity that's available, uh, a lot of hotels shut down because there isn't much of a tourist market uh, in the middle of a pandemic. Um, you, you may be able to use those properties as as temporary shelters. Um, which is important in terms of trying to keep people socially distanced. You know, the the classic uh, hurricane shelter is, you know, a a high school gym uh, or or a high school cafeteria. And it's hard to keep people six feet apart (laughs) in those sorts of circumstances. But they also need to be stocked up with with PPE. I know in North Carolina, the, the governor has been advising people to bring their own hand sanitizer and masks, but it would be great if, more of these temporary shelters had had those things available but supplies are are short um it's going to be a challenge uh are the hurricane season lasts through the end of november and uh we have had hurricane seasons that went into january i remember 2005 we were still getting uh hurricanes from the 2005 season into january 2006 uh so that's it's going to be a long and difficult road uh and we're 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 probably not as prepared as we should be, uh, but uh, it's something we have to take seriously.
0: Yeah. R.J. Lehman is a resident senior fellow at the R Street Institute and the director of finance, insurance, and trade policy, uh, the website rstreet.org. R.J., thanks so much for your time today, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Now, one of the big problems after any kind of a flood, you're going to get what? mildew, mold growing in your place, right? That's terrible, fungus and stuff. You don't want that. You also don't want, I'm guessing, just uh, off the top of my head, you don't want E. coli, MRSA, H1N1, norovirus, influenza B, sars covid 2 or... Uh, coronavirus, the uh, COVID-19 virus, right? You don't want any of these things, right? So what you want then is the Karcher Misting System with Vital Oxide Disinfectant from General Equipment Rental in Weaverville. It's your source for this misting system, okay? So if you have any kind of a problem, you want it to sanitize, disinfect, and you want it to work, then you got to get to General Equipment Rental in Weaverville for the Karcher Misting System with Vital Oxide Disinfectant. It is safe for kids and pets, Food contact surfaces. It's an all in one hospital grade EPA approved germicidal disinfectant, sanitizer, and deodorizer. It kills 99.9% of infection causing bacteria and viruses, including all of the ones I listed. No rinse required, non toxic, hypoallergenic, odorless, colorless, 100% biodegradable. And this thing is super easy to maneuver around. It's got four independent wheels, it's cordless. You can spray it all over the place and then just spot clean the areas that uh, are high traffic because the sanitizer will take care of everything else for like up to 10 days it's a great deal head on over to general equipment rental in weaverville at the intersection of merriman avenue and reams creek road family owned and operated for three generations go to their website generalrents.com slash pete and get a coupon for two free cloth face coverings generalrents.com uh and uh think outside your toolbox All right, let me shift gears now and turn your attention to a piece by John Hood at the Carolina Journal. And once again, all of the topics that I talk about are all at the Pete's Prep uh, post on Patreon. It's the quadruple P. Um, And uh, this one is titled County Races Turn on Governance. As recently as 2008, 64 of the state's 100 counties had Democratic majorities. See, I'm old enough to remember this 2008 almost two-thirds of all of the counties in North Carolina had Democratic majorities on their boards of commissioners. Uh, A decade later now, even as the Republicans lost ground in legislative and judicial races, the share of Republican county commissioners actually rose during that same time to 56 out of the 100. That is the highest number of boards of commissioners in Republican control in North Carolina history. Never before. Have we seen as many boards of commissioners controlled by Republicans? Think about that for a moment, right? That's how strong the Democratic Party's grip was on the state of North Carolina for basically its entire existence. So as I uh, this is John Hood again, he says, as I look at key swing counties where this year's competitive statewide and legislative races will be settled He says, I don't see many opportunities for partisan flips of commission control. In other words, even if most polls are accurately predicting a rough 2020 for Republicans, the party is not likely to lose much ground at the county level. Okay, that's not to say anything about what happens at the state or federal levels. This fact, he says, reflects the down-ballot realignment that began in 1984 when Republicans went from 11 county commissions to 23 and then continued into the 1990s and the 2000s. One factor is that in rural counties where conservative voters once split their tickets, voting Republican for federal offices and Democratic for state and local ones, they've become more reliably Republican. Although Roy Cooper got some crucial split ticket votes in rural communities to clinch his narrow victory in 2016. There are a couple reasons for this. Um, I've gone over, well, over the last four years, basically, I've uh, sort of broken down at various stages uh, what happened uh, over the course of that election in 2016 that allowed Cooper to eke out a victory by like 10,000 votes uh, over McCrory. And yeah, McCrory did lose support. No doubt about it. McCrory lost some support. He lost support among uh, moderate Republicans who thought that he was, you know, going to be a Republican. Yes, but more moderate like them. And by more moderate, more I mean more liberal, right? Like they they didn't want like the HB2 stuff and the abortion clinic regulations. They 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 did not they don't want to discuss any of that. They don't like that topic. It makes them feel icky. There are a lot of Republicans that don't like talking about guns, and they don't like talking about abortion. Okay? Not that, <clears throat> well, I mean, some people do like talking about guns, but uh, most people don't like talking about abortion, at least on the right. There are a lot of people that love talking about it on the left, and they make shirts and stuff that say it, but a lot of people on the right don't like talking about it. I, I can't tell you how many times it is used in conservative media circles, uh, this idea that you know people don't want to hear about guns and abortion happens all the time, okay happens all the time so if you're not hearing those topics, usually it's a conscious decision uh, and I think to the detriment actually of well obviously the millions of babies that were aborted, but also the entire political discourse around that issue because a lot of things have changed since Roe v Wade like science wise right We know a lot more now than we did then. At any rate, uh, I'm, I'm getting off the track here, but that was one of the reasons McCrory lost. The other reason was this toll road project in northern Mecklenburg County that ever, that, that completely swung the the, uh, the other direction. You know, he, he carried that whole area, the northern suburbs of Mecklenburg. Uh, he carried the area when he first ran and won in 2012, and then he lost that whole area, and he lost. And the flip of uh, votes in that one area was a little bit more than the margin he lost by. So you could make the case that that alone sank him. And this was over a toll road project that the local governing, uh, governing officials, the local, like the towns and uh, and the county and all the surrounding uh, uh, the other counties, like everybody was on board with this toll road project. And then all of a sudden the whole thing blew up and they were like, Macquarie needs to cancel this contract at the cost of hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and when McCrory said, look, you guys all voted for this, you guys pushed this through and I can't do this without costing the state all this money. And they were like, nah, you stink. And they all voted against Macquarie. And then they got Cooper, who appointed as his DOT Uh, secretary, the very guy who led the whole toll road project thing. So good job, North (laughs) Mech. You got you. You really showed Pat McQuarrie and all of North Carolinians. You really showed us because they're not getting any relief from this. Uh, Nothing has changed on that. Anyway, um, that was part of it. Uh, The other thing, though, is that North Carolina has this long history of being ticket splitters. And why is that? Federal races versus state races, and this this is one of the biggest. Um, it's one of the biggest pieces of evidence against what is referred to on the right as the big lie. The big lie is what Democrats tell themselves in order to sort of uh, assuage their guilty consciences about being the party of Jim Crow, the Klan, secession, the Confederacy, racism, right, all of that. Uh, and so, in order to uh, cope with this. They make the argument that all the racists left the Democratic Party, joined the Republican Party, and they did this because the Democrat president signed the Civil Rights Act, which the Republicans passed. That's always one of the pieces of evidence against this stupid idea. Um, but this is the other thing. Why is North Carolina splitting its tickets then for decades, right? Why was North Carolina splitting tickets between Democratic? Uh, federal races, and or I should say, Republican federal races and Democratic state races. Why? Why did that occur? If all the racists left, why were they splitting tickets? They just couldn't decide who was the more, you know, white supremacy kind of a candidate or what? No, it's because it's a it's a it's a simplistic and stupid argument that they make in the, on this front. So, what's really going on? Democrats control the state and county governments. As John Hood mentioned here, how many, like almost every one of them for most of the modern history since the Civil War, county commissions were controlled by Democrats, state government controlled by Democrats. And so what does that mean? Well, it means if you are trying to get a job at the county level, you're trying to get building permits, you're trying to do anything basically that requires government approval at the local level or the state level. You, you know, you need to make sure that you've got some friends. And if you want a job at the state government, you're going to have to register as a Democrat and you're going to have to donate to their campaigns. That's how they ensured that they stayed in power for so long. That's why North Carolina has this history of being ticket splitters. Now, I would submit that the 2016 election was a very odd election, given the candidates, um, but... Yeah, I mean, Donald Trump was a disruptive kind of force in that election. He still won North Carolina, but barely, right? Um, So there was a lot going on in 2016. There are also those suburban counties that flipped. Oh, actually, you know what? Speaking of flipping, do you need to flip your mattress? Do you do that? You flip your mattress all the time, right? Every time you change the sheets, you flip the mattress to make it last longer and all. Um, So here's the deal. At some point, flipping it isn't going to fix it. So what you need is a new mattress, and this is a great time to get a great deal on a great mattress from Mattress Man. Zero down, zero interest for up to 24 months, and zero payments for 90 days. It's the triple zero deal. MattressManStores.com. Walk on into any of their four local locations in Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville, uh, and let the sleep consultants help you find the right bed for you. Because how you sleep, the position in which you sleep, uh, that has a lot to do with whether or not you're going to get a good night's sleep on a particular mattress. Some mattresses are just better for side sleepers versus stomach sleepers versus... Yeah, you know, maybe you need your head elevated, so you need an adjustable base, for example. Here's one. You want a memory foam, but you're, you're maybe you're afraid like, oh, I've heard memory foams are hot, right? Okay, well, how about this? $399 for a queen gel memory foam mattress. That will keep you cool, okay? $399 for a queen... Gel Memory Foam Mattress. Hot deals to keep you cool. It's what I'm saying. Free bedding bundle, including sheets, protectors, and pillows with the purchase of select mattresses as well. It is all at mattress mattressman, stores.com Experience the difference. Five star local delivery service. They do ship nationwide and a 120-day comfort guarantee. Mattressmanstores.com. Buy local and sleep better. So the realignment. Uh, of these county commissions in North Carolina. They're technically people just, and I say it too, county commissions. They're not actually commissions. They're boards of commissioners, as if it matters. I mean, technically it does, but anyway, whatever. So the realignment hasn't all been in one direction. Some places that now boast heavily Democratic boards of commissioners used to be more politically competitive, including the two most populous counties, Mecklenburg and Wake. I was actually a reporter the last time down in Charlotte. I was a reporter the last time uh, the Board of Commissioners there, Mecklenburg County's Board of Commissioners, had a Republican majority. Tom Cox, I believe, was the last Republican chairman uh, of that body. And uh, nowadays, I don't think there's, I don't even think there's a single Republican left on the county commission down there. Buncombe County is about to go the same way, thanks to the redistricting rulings and the new maps that got passed. Those, those our three districts are drawn in such a way you'll never get a Republican. And by the way, this is what Democrats call fair maps. When you can't get a single Republican in a county like Buncombe, when you can't get a single Republican on the county commission because of the maps, they call those fair maps. To some extent, John Hood continues, this also reflects immigration patterns, right? New arrivals in our urban counties, tend to be disproportionately Democratic, which wasn't necessarily true a generation or two ago. If you're a Republican or a Republican leaning, a GOP leaning independent, and you move to North Carolina to take a job in Charlotte or Raleigh or Greensboro, a lot of times you end up buying your home in one of the neighboring red counties, and then you commute in. All of which is to say that while Republicans currently control 56% of the state's county commissioners, GOP boards don't govern 56% of the state's population. Okay, does that make sense? Right? They control more than half of the boards, but they're mostly rural boards. So to compete effectively for statewide office or control of the General Assembly over time, Republicans are going to have to regain their footing in major metro areas. They're going to have to win outer ring suburbs, and uh, they're going to have to get a larger share of votes in the inner suburbs of urban counties. So, how do you do that? Um, the GOP candidates at all level of government, he says, will have to talk about governance and not symbolism. They have to explain how their ideas translated into actual public policy. That how that how those policies then would make families and communities better off in practical terms. He says politics has become more nationalized. And uh, when hiring county commissioners, voters are still looking for practical solutions to local concerns. I'm not so sure. I'm really not. I have seen too many elections, uh, and Buncombe County last uh, cycle was a perfect example of it. You had county commissioners who were in charge, who were on the board during Wanda Green's reign of corruption. The county manager who's, you know, since been convicted on federal uh, corruption charges, you had county commissioners running for re-election against that backdrop. That was their record. They were the ones who were supposed to be, you know, providing oversight to that county manager while she engaged in multi-million-dollar corrupt acts. And those Democratic commissioners won re-election, right? I have seen it in other races. I saw it down. Here's the classic example. State legislative race, admittedly, but it was Jim Black. And Jim Black, the who went to prison also on federal corruption charges, he was the Speaker of the House. He won his district while he was under investigation. Democratic voters preferred to have a corrupt Democrat than any Republican. And the guy who was running was like this i mean very very moderate republican businessman guy and didn't didn't matter right it it just did not matter they would rather have uh they would rather have a corrupt democrat and and I, i'm sure it goes the other way those are the examples that i have witnessed mainly because i've been living in um you know blue areas basically my entire professional career <laughs> for over 20 years living in these blue areas um Yeah, people, uh, so I'm not sure that people are really looking for the practical solutions. Um, Maybe at some point they do. Maybe at some point there becomes a backlash. I think, though, in some of these urban areas, the critical mass is such that it really doesn't matter. There are people that are going to vote Democrat regardless. They don't care. A lot of them don't even know the candidates. They're they're not even aware of this stuff. And unless something breaks through and maybe this is what that law and order campaign is going to be all about, you know, maybe that's. Maybe that's the winning ticket. Maybe that's the message that appeals to enough people. I don't know, right? I don't know. We shall see. Um, I will say, though, the law and order message, I think it does resonate in a lot of the suburbs. I'm seeing more and more videos of these protesters trying to gain access uh, outside of the urban downtown business district core, right? They start going out into the, the inner ring suburbs and even farther out, and they're being met with resistance. Right. Because I think people out there ain't going to put up with your garbage. Right. They're just not going to do it. Uh, I think it's a different mentality. And so now do you connect those things to local Democratic leadership? I don't know. Do you vote for Republicans, even though you hate them on the social issues? But but they're the ones that are actually going to enforce laws. I don't know. I don't know. I do know this now more than ever. You're going to need old grouch. Old Grouch's military surplus in downtown Clyde. He's got an expanded line of first aid kits and medical supplies. These will help you in all sorts of emergencies. He's got various uh, uh, priced kits. Uh, so if you're looking for just sort of you know something to take hiking, you want something maybe a little bit more, uh, I don't know, versatile. You can go from you know treating scrapes all the way up to gunshot wounds with all of these different kits. Um, and he's got body armor all kinds these are uh, some of them are foreign some of this body armor is not american made but they are all made to nato specs uh he sells these in store or over the phone only also face masks uh these are made by a local disabled veteran family they're made out of military parachutes uh so they are lightweight and they are soft he also has steel gas cans these are the pre-banned old school cans He has tons of real U.S. military surplus, and he has for more than three decades Old Grouch's military surplus on Main Street in downtown Clyde. The shop is open Monday through Saturday. It's across the street from the anti-aircraft gun and at OldGrouch.com. That's OldGrouch.com. Cal Cunningham is a former state lawmaker, and he is now running for U.S. Senate against Tom Tillis. And uh, he was the UNC Chapel Hill student body president in the 90s, 1995, following the collapse of the Soviet Union. He was asked in the uh, UNC student newspaper if there was any merit to communism. Pretty standard question. Hey, you're the student body president. So, Mr. President, what do you think about the fall of communism? (laughs) And, of course, the student body president, Cal Cunningham, says, quote, there's very much merit in communist ideology, but you have to be careful how you define it. Isn't it funny how these things, these arguments have never changed, right? In what now, 25 years, these arguments have not changed. There's, he says, there's very much merit in communist ideology, but you have to be careful how you define it. I think that in practice what we saw in the Soviet Union was totalitarianism in action. See? And by the way, he claims in the piece uh, in the interview to have studied Marxist philosophy quote quite thoroughly. He went on to say that despite some fundamental flaws there were a lot of things we can still take from Marxism. Communism for all its merits he says is something that we have more trouble achieving. So it's always Real communism has never been tried. It's always the same argument with these people, right? Why is this? Why does this matter? And I got into a bit of a, a discussion, if you will, with a uh, a young, fresh out of college lefty who works at the General Assembly now as a legislative aide. And uh, he was saying, like, this is a really weak argument. Oh, yeah, pay no attention to the fact that he did two combat tours in Afghanistan. Like, this has nothing to do with his combat tours in Afghanistan, by the way, uh, because communists join the military all the time. I'm not sure the kid's aware of that. Uh, remember the West Point grad? Remember that? And he had the 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 hat, his West Point hat, and he had like, communism will win or something like that under his hat. Um, yeah, so communists join the military too, um, but I'm not saying Cal, uh, Cal Cunningham is a communist. I'm just saying... I think there might be a question here that one could ask about when his road to Damascus moment occurred. This is, it's not so much that he said this this stuff as a college kid, like, okay, a lot of college kids think like this, and then they get out of college, and the brainwashing wears off, and sorry, the education wears off, and they are like, you know what, that communism stuff doesn't really work so well. I'm not uh, not as big a fan of the communism anymore, right? So I'd like to know, though, like when did you realize like that this was a bad deci- a bad opinion, rather? Or do you still believe it? I guess that would be the first question. You said uh, that there's very much merit in communist ideology. Do you still think that? Do you still think there is a lot of merit, or very much merit in communism? And if he says no, then the follow-up obviously is, when did you decide? when did you come to that opinion that it wasn't? Like, when did you know that you were mistaken about this prior opinion? I think that's a completely legitimate question because, honestly, having somebody with communist sympathies in the U.S. Senate might be problematic. Although I do admit, this does have a whole dog-bites-man kind of a feel to it as far as a news story goes, and this is from the Washington Free Beacon. Um, Because, honestly, uh, like... You found a Democrat who expressed sympathies towards communism. Is that really newsworthy? Like, that's. (laughs) Come on. Right? Oh my gosh, I can't believe there are Marxists in the Democratic Party. (laughs) So now, yeah, now if he had rejected it at that early age, now that might be, you know, man bites dog newsworthiness. Um, Cal Cunningham also, uh, this is interesting. He's a, a Democratic attorney, Iraq War veteran, and, uh, oh, I think I said he served in Afghanistan earlier, right? So he served in, Iraq war, in the Iraq War, um, and he's running against Tom Tillis, but he was also a former state lawmaker back in the early 2000s before the Republicans won control of the General Assembly, and uh, he made a no-tax-increase pledge at that time when he was running, and then he turned around and voted for a $1 billion tax increase when he was in the state legislature in 2001. Back then, Cunningham said that he agonized over the decision, but defended his support for raising sales taxes uh, and uh, other tax and taxes on the state's highest earners, right? So the income tax. This is what he did in 2001. We asked, he said, I won't raise your taxes and then turn around and raise sales taxes and he raised the income taxes. And the sales tax, if I remember correctly, that was the temporary sales tax. They put a sunset clause in it, and then they didn't let it sunset. We asked, this is what I mean, Democrats ran this state. People who weren't here in the 2000s, this is the kind of stuff that they were pulling all the time with taxes. jacking people's rates up, promising them that it would be temporary, uh, and then making it permanent. Oh, and also withholding their uh, tax refunds, our income tax refunds. I had mine withheld. They withheld money that went to the cities uh, because they were trying to balance their own budget because they could not figure out how to balance a budget. Because when they see a penny, they spend a penny. And then when anything happens in the economy, (laughs) then they're like, oh my gosh, I got no money. Um, And then they have to raise taxes because that's the only way they think that they can get more money into the treasury. Despite the fact that studies show when you, all the, I mean, history shows that when you cut the tax rates, Uh, It generates more economic activity, and that leads to more money in the treasury. Now, if you would like to keep more money in your personal treasury, and you are a veteran, active duty, military, or retired, or you're a police officer, a firefighter, a healthcare professional, or an educator, and you are looking to buy or sell a home, then you need to call Rowena Patton at 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com is her website, 333-4483. She and her team, uh, the All-Star Powerhouse team, uh, are the only official Homes for Heroes real estate agents in Asheville. This is a national program that gives buyers and sellers 25% back from the realtor commissions if you are in those five professions. Go check out the program, mountainhomehunt.com, buying or selling the only agent I would call Rowena Patton, 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com, and start packing. So Cal Cunningham, not only did he raise these taxes um, and uh, after he said he wouldn't, he said that the issue for him was one of fairness. If it's a tight year and we have to cut $377 million out of the state budget, then those who have benefited from loopholes should do their part. But when it comes to his own taxes, according to Real Clear Politics' Susan Crabtree, Uh, Cunningham has taken advantage of government programs to reduce his obligation. From 2015 to 2019, Cal Cunningham took nearly $40,000 in state tax credits for a $130,000 renovation to his home, a project that added a wet bar, butler's pantry, and expanded his master bedroom and replaced laminate with hardwood floors. $40,000 in state tax credits. The state's historic preservation office approved this application um, for his Raleigh house. Okay. His house. The house is apparently constructed uh, in 1920. It's in Cameron park neighborhood, West of downtown. It's worth almost a million dollars, a million dollar house. And he's taken this, this state tax credit. He reported over uh, almost half a million dollars in income last year. Compensation for legal work and his position as vice president and general counsel for Waste Zero, a Raleigh-based waste reduction company. That figure is more than eight times the median household income in North Carolina. The historic renovation tax credits, available only to properties listed on the National Register of Historic Places, were used by more than 600 North Carolina taxpayers in 2015. Rachel Petrie was Cunningham's spokeswoman said Cal believes everyone should pay their fair share and the budget you cite did exactly that to address an $800 million dollar budget shortfall while also increasing teacher pay, establishing pre-k and reducing class size. right? So they did those things. So they had an $800 million dollar budget shortfall and then they went and expanded all of these government programs and services, right? They grew spending. And then they're like, oh, my gosh, we have this big deficit. What are we going to do? How about we raise taxes? And so they raise taxes, despite pledges not to. Cunningham spokeswoman blasted Tillis for his work on North Carolina's tax cuts. I thought that was interesting. So you can tell the different philosophies here. As I just outlined, Democrats see a penny, spend a penny. Republicans are like, hey, if if you cut taxes, it generates more money for the Treasury because there's more economic activity. To tax. Joseph Coletti, a senior fellow with the John Locke Foundation, a conservative think tank, said, quote, What is the value that the state gets out of an individual homeowner renovating his house? And should it subsidize their choice of laminate flooring over hardwoods? Government policies on taxes should raise money in the least invasive and least discriminatory way. When you reward someone for a certain behavior, you're misusing the tax code, in my view, he said. Now, by the way, this uh, this loophole, dare I call it the term that Cunningham uh, called it back in 2001, which was sort of a, a blame-the-victim approach, you know, he's like, well, we spent all this extra money on all these new programs and services, and we raised teacher pay, and we started pre-K, and we did all this stuff, and uh, so now we've got like almost a billion-dollar budget uh, deficit. And uh, so the real reason here is for it, it, that we are not able to to cover this shortfall is because you guys are taking loopholes. Like, that's literally the argument he was making. Democrats raised taxes to pay for their programs and then blamed the rich for taking loopholes. Meanwhile, this guy's taking loopholes, right? He's taking the very loopholes because the program that he used, this state program, it was eventually um, uh, discontinued, okay? This program was discontinued. So this idea that he was like, oh, I'm just, you know, taking advantage of this, you know, government program. Like, I'm not even aware, um, well, not aware, but I, I'm not even so sure that, like, why would this thing qualify? Was it was it deemed to be a historic house? Is it on the National Register of Historic Places? I, I don't know. The article doesn't say that, but I don't know if the state required it to be so. Um So again, it's just another example, you know, hypocrisy. I'm going to blast everybody for taking loopholes, but I'm going to take them myself. And uh, that's okay. That's okay. All right, that's a wrap for this episode. Remember, subscribe to the podcast. I appreciate that. And you can give it a positive review, a thumbs up, five stars, write a little note, whatevs. And maybe even consider becoming a patron of the program. You'll get some cool stuff and exclusive content like our weekly live streams of consciousness that we do. Uh, every Thursday night. Links are at com. They are also in the description of the podcast. And thanks so much for your support. We'll talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.